This week's I Worked at the Palm Springs Follies. First of all, let's get some thank yous in. And that goes out to Ms. Jardine and Mr. Markowitz for giving us the ability to do this show. We, with their blessing, we thank them very much for being a part of this and helping us out. And also, special thanks to Greg Purdy, who was last week's guest, and who also has helped kind of guide the podcast a little bit with some things and helping out uh, around uh, with some of our ideas and some other things that's going to be coming up a little bit later on in some other episodes. So in this episode, we're going to continue with my first month at the Follies. We're now uh, into January of 1995. We possibly might be as far as February of 1995. And those first couple of weeks at the Follies... I spent a lot of time in the lighting booth because we weren't quite ready for me to move into the audio world yet for whatever reason. I'm not really sure what was taking place behind the scenes. At that particular time, the audio console for mixing the show was way up in the house on the house right side up in, we used to call them the Holcomb. It's that hallway that ran uh, along the side of the theater on the left and the right side of the audience. I think in the later years, those were used for spotlight positions. And also the confetti cannons were placed along there. And uh, eventually some speakers were placed along there and some more lighting was there. Those, that first year though, Uh, For me, that's where the audio department was, basically. That's where the mixing console and the playback devices were at. We had, at the time, a rather small mixing console. It was had enough inputs on it for 16 things. And we had, I believe, four to six wireless mics that the singers used on stage, along with Mr. Markowitz's microphone, along with uh, our playback. So... It was a small mixing desk, but we used pretty well everything that was there. And as I referenced earlier in another episode, the head of the audio department at that time, which was really just one person, was Keith Margulies. And I hope I'm saying his last name right. Keith was probably, I'm going to guess, 10 to 15 years older than I am, had been in the business for many, many years, Done a lot of things, uh, done some tours, uh, worked as just a regular stagehand, worked as an audio guy. Done, so he'd been around the business for uh, probably you know, 10 to 15 years longer than I had. While this wasn't really my first rodeo, as we like to say, in the business, this was kind of the first time that I was put in a position of being sort of uh, second in command, I guess, of something like this. And Keith was an odd duck, or I say was, as far as I know, Keith is still alive, Uh, uh, but Keith, uh, for his time at the Follies, was an odd duck. He was very tough to get to know. And especially in these particular times, we were doing those, working six, I think we were working six days a week, we had Mondays off. So when that Sunday night would roll around and we would head out to the local watering hole, uh, oh boy, and the name escapes me, it's Fitzgerald's, is that right? down the street was where we went a lot of times. Keith would become a different guy. He would become friendly. He would be talkative, you know, and, and it wasn't just the alcohol because I very seldom, I think he might've enjoyed one drink while he was there with us. 
Yet he still would open up. And you could tell he was a fun guy, but for whatever reason, when he was at the Follies, it was more than just being serious about your job. He was just walking on eggshells all the time. It was really... It was hard to understand. And it really made things for us difficult as well. Not just for me as the guy that was supposed to be working with him, but it made it difficult for other departments and things like that. And Mr. Markowitz had this uncanny ability that, as far as I know, he carried through all the way till the end of the Follies. And that was that he listened and watched the show from a lot of points and places throughout the theater. He, he would watch every show. And he would call throughout the show, and he would either call the lighting department, or he would call the stage manager, or he'd call the audio department, and he'd, he'd have notes about things that were happening right then and there that he wanted changed immediately. And Mr. Markowitz is someone you cannot fool. If he told you to turn the trumpets down 3 dB, and you just said, okay, done, he knew whether you really did it or not. There's a lot of people that when they tell you things like that in the audio world, they'll say, oh, I need my guitar louder or I need this louder. And, and sometimes you know that they're just being a difficult person to work with. There are some people that pretend that they're making those moves. Like they pretend they're giving them more. Now, I've never been that sort of a guy because I don't think that's honest to, to work with a performer that way. There are some people that do that. And lo and behold, the performer will think, oh my goodness, yeah, that's a hundred times better. It's a funny phenomenon to see. It happens quite a bit. So that was something that always set Keith apart in that he wasn't used to that sort of uh, thing happening while he was actually mixing the show. And one of the things he would always do is as soon as the show was over with and that last cannon hit went off that sent the confetti flying, he would take the phone that was there in the booth and he would take it off the hook so that whoever called got a busy signal. And he really wasn't wrong to do that because it's sort of like you've just done this hour and a half or two hour show where you've been really focused, really intense, and you kind of just want five minutes to decompress. And that was his thinking. That's all he wanted was that five minutes to decompress before he got told what he did wrong or what needed to be changed, that sort of thing. And it wasn't that he was turn, taking the phone off the hook so he didn't have to talk to Riff. It would have been anyone that would have called him from stage management to lighting. There, there, Numerous people could have called him to ask him all sorts of questions. And that's what he would do after every performance. Now that kind of sets the stage for who Keith is a little bit, I hope. Well, in those first weeks or so when I was just sitting up in the lighting booth observing the show, there came a point where Riff was trying to call Keith in the middle of a show to tell him something. And I don't recall what that was. So he called to the lighting booth where Franklin, our stage manager, was at calling the show. And he informed Franklin that he was trying to get a hold of Keith. Could he get a hold of Keith and tell him this? Well, not only did we have phones, we also had a clear comm system, which is sort of a theatrical phone system, if you will. And we tried to raise Keith on that device, and that didn't happen either. So Franklin 
turns around to me and says, Steve, I need you to go down the hokum and tell Keith that Riff is trying to get a hold of him. Well, I'm a people pleaser, so I said, no problem, I'm on my way. One of the other guys in the booth at that time, Paul Fickett, who was one of the other lighting uh, members, turns to Franklin and says, Franklin, I think that's a really bad idea. Franklin responded with, I don't care. Riff wants him to know X, Y, Z. Paul says, okay, (laughs) good luck, Steve. Now, when you had to go down that Holcomb, it was almost like going through a uh, Keebler elf situation because there was a do- there was a couple of doors and they were literally the kind of doors that you had to almost get on your hands and knees to go through. Well, I take off and then of course you wanted to stay low so that you were below a certain line so that the audience didn't necessarily see you either. So I take off down that uh, Holcomb and I get through the first door and I'm crouched down and going through. And I open the next door, and that next door is just right behind where Keith is sitting, mixing the show. And I sat there for just a moment, (laughs) waiting for the right time to tap Keith on the shoulder. Because I didn't want to tap him on the shoulder while there was a microphone open, something like that. So I waited until, you know, there was something going on on stage that didn't require necessarily his 100% complete attention. So I reach up, I tap Keith on the shoulder, he immediately spins around and grabs me by the neck because I had startled him. Now, maybe in today's world, that might seem like an overreaction, but from where I come from, I, did, I don't, in, the, in my view now, I don't see it as that big of an overreaction. At the time, I sort of did. It, it angered me more than anything. And I grabbed a hold of his hand and I wrestled it off my throat, and I said, man, I'm just trying to tell you something that Riff's been trying to get a hold of you. And so I told him whatever it was, and I immediately just, I left. And I went back up to the the booth, and I explained to to the guys what happened, and I said, that's it. I'm not working with him. You're going to fire him, or you're going to fire me. And, you know, that was a typical hot-headed response for me at the time, and not an unwarranted response from me, just like turning around and grabbing my throat, I can see is not necessarily not an unwarranted response from Keith. I mean, he's used to being in this small space by himself. No one would ever have approached him before in this instance. And suddenly there's a tap on his shoulder. Well, you know, it's startling. It really is, especially for a guy like him who is so engrossed in what he's doing. Well, I don't know exactly what happened or what was said to anybody, but uh, later that day, Keith met me in the hallway and he said, you know, I just want to apologize. I'm sorry for grabbing you like that. You know, I was startled. It was an overreaction on my part. I really apologize. I'm sorry. And my response to him was, Keith, man, I'm just here to work for you. I'm here to work with you. I'm not here to take your job away from you. I just want to help. That's all. And at that point, suddenly something clicked in Keith's brain a little bit, and he said, got it, understood, I get it, man. And from that point on, I started sitting with Keith up in the audio mixing area. I would sit behind him, so I spent probably about a month sitting behind him, and I was diligently taking notes on everything he did and how he did it, 
and what he needed me to do and what riff needed to be done and how things were done and what order they were done in. And so I, I, I had this, uh, uh, three by five notebook, three by five cards, and that became my script as it were. And Keith was really good at what he did, making things very organized for the show every day so that it, it could always, you know, from his perspective, run in the same vein. And I, I could have said, well, no, I don't want to do it that way. I want to do it my way, but I didn't. I fell in line and I did it Keith's way because it was working it was what the producer wanted. It was what the stage manager wanted. It was what the audience wanted. You know, it, we lose sight sometimes when we go to a job or we go to do something and we say, well, you know, I can do it better if I do it this way or that way. Well, that's possible. But when you're first starting out in something new, maybe you should just kind of get in line a little bit, see why things are done a certain way. And then as they progress, those little things will pop up that allow you to change how things are done or maybe make things better or, or maybe find out why things are done a certain way. And that's really a, a great lesson in how the Follies worked all of those years and why it was able to continue working every year, every day that they were open. Because every department put itself in that position of this is the way we're doing things now. We understand there might be a better way. We'll look at it. We'll test it. We'll put it through the ringer before we ever allow it to be put on stage. And wow, do I have some stories where we screwed that idea up as well. Oh my goodness, where we allowed things to go into the show that we didn't test correctly or we didn't thoroughly vet. Oh my goodness. Uh, just, yeah, there was some pretty amazing things that we did sometimes that was a disaster. And it was usually on us. It was our fault. Well, that started my path with Keith and that little mixing area down that hokum. And that was quite a... Looking back on it now, I don't know how we functioned. And two of us functioned in that little... What I can only describe as a closet space. It really was. I just, I don't get it. And we, Keith and I went on and finished out that year. So finished out the spring of 95. We came back in the fall of 95. And we made, uh, there was a bunch of changes made to our department in the fall of 95 as far as where we mixed from and um, how we did things. And so we'll get into that later as well as, as we go along there. But what are some of your stories about the, maybe the first little bit when you were at the Follies, did you have anybody choke you? Did that happen to anybody else? Or am I the only guy that got choked? I, uh, I can't recall anyone else getting choked after me, at least in the next 10 years or so that I was around. So maybe you got whopped on the head. I don't know. I don't know. But that's it for this week's edition of I Worked at the Fabulous Palm Springs Follies. Again, I thank everyone that's listening. I thank everyone that gives me a, a hand with this. And some of you, as I said, are starting to get uh, some audio files from me, reaching out to you to get some stuff back to me. We're looking ahead to some wonderful guests. And soon we're going to be starting a series where we'll hear from uh, Mr. Markowitz and Ms. Jardine on a regular basis, believe it or not. Yeah, we have some fun and exciting things that are coming up there. 
And just a week or so ago, I had a, a chance to see Riff. Uh, my schedules and his schedule didn't quite work out, even though we were in the same town. Um, I, I, we just couldn't connect. So we're hoping to be able to do that later on this uh, summer to get there and spend a day or so uh, in Carlsbad with Riff and get some video with him even. So that's where we're going next, I hope. Anyway, I look forward to talking to you next week. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, a couple of those things in that first year that went horribly, horribly wrong, and one of them involves a chimpanzee. Well, that's it for this week's I Worked at the Fabulous Palm Springs Follies.